Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's uh, It's been a very exciting week for us in the church. Has it, though? Has it not, yeah. though? Like, let's talk about a couple of these, actually, because um, Mormon Twitter's been ablaze. Social media among the Morgan blogosphere has just generally been ablaze with a lot of things with, uh, what is it, murder Mormons? I don't know. I should know this by now, but I don't know. Murder among the Mormons. Murder among the Mormons and also these events at BYU this past week. Derek, you want to run the people or run by the people what happened at BYU this week? So this was the one-year anniversary of the, what I'm just going to call the just kidding letter. So what happened was (laughs) there was a period where the honor code language was changed and students were made to understand at BYU that that now permitted Uh, gay relationships and gay dating along the same lines as straight relationships and dating for unmarried straight couples. You know, kissing, holding hands, and all sorts of stuff like that. Right. Because there's nothing in the law of chastity against that for either gay or straight couples. However, uh, two weeks later, after a lot of LGBT students at BYU started celebrating, some of them came out cautiously Some of them thought, finally, we can breathe. Someone came out with this letter. I forgot even who it was right now. And it was a very, very awfully worded letter. Not only was it just wrong, but it wasn't even very thoughtful or consistent with our teachings or our philosophy or anything. It was just really riddled with excuses, actually. And let me just give one, one example. It says, well, these type of relationships will not lead to an eternal marriage, therefore we can't let them happen. That makes no sense because, for example, a widow who is uh, sealed to another husband, if she, for example, dated someone in the army and he died and they were sealed and she was a, she's a young widow, she can still date on campus and that will never lead to an eternal marriage. Right, she's already sealed to someone else. So uh-huh. there's just so many ways that this letter was really. And here's the problem: I think the homophobic world is grasping at straws. Like they know that they don't have anything to solid to stand on. So oh, well, you anyway. saw that a bunch this week. Yeah, yeah, they're going to come up with excuses and justifications, and it's uh, a mess. Well, anyway, back to this letter. So then, a year ago, this letter came out devastating the community, um, the LGBTQ community. And then um, a lot of allies showed up for us. I say us, I mean, I'm not at BYU, but anyway. So now here a year later, people decided to mark that day and they did it by having not a protest, but basically a gathering of love on campus and I don't even know it was the gathering it was basically everyone just decided to wear rainbows that day just to show love for my people and then in the evening there was this surprise that the Y that's on the side of the mountain like why is there a Y on the mountain I don't even know but some students about 50 in number decided to go up to the Y and shine colored flashlights on it in order to make the Y into a rainbow and this rainbow was visible throughout all of Provo and it brought a lot of people hope and joy and pride and visibility and it was a very brilliant act of nonviolent resistance mm-hmm so that's that's what happened, and then I saw all these rainbow whys everywhere. What what did you think about this? You know, I don't know how appropriate it is for me to share these feelings even now. I mean, it, it was just a very positive thing for me to see because it wasn't just the anniversary they were commemorating. There was a bit of hate speech that was circulating on BYU campus, like people right. who were members of this group were circulating about, do you feel like the rainbow is raining on you or something like that? And then they wanted to like shield themselves from the rain by cloaking themselves in umbrellas of the family proclamation, some mess like that. Now that this is a couple of days removed from it, something that also stood out to me was the fact that I know some of these students that were there. I know there were students of color present at this thing. There were students of color wearing the rainbows. It was either Lindsay or Blair that somebody said this week, something along the lines of, this is why intersectionality is so important because the response to this whole thing just kind of reeked of white privilege. Because if this was something 
that happened within like the black community. If people came for black folks like they did last year uh, during Black History Month, there would not be the same degree of solidarity. We know that not a lot of people in the gay community or not a lot of people in the white community in general have relationships with people in the black community. Now, it shouldn't be the case, but we know that a lot of times that people decide to shoulder these burdens of bigotry is because they know somebody that's involved. And it's why that uh, heart part of the head hands heart uh, model of change is so important. I'm very happy for the gay community at BYU, and I don't want to also ignore the intersectionality and the fact that there are gay students of mm -hmm, color mm -hmm. at BYU, like LGBTQ students of color in general. In short, I hope that BYU students keep that same energy the next time people decide to Zoom bomb a meeting for, uh, for black students at BYU or decide to try to intimidate student, black students at BYU when they assert their humanity. Oh, and BYU's response to this whole thing. I know you saw this, Derek, and yeah. if there's anything humorous to me about BYU's response to the event, it was the fact that they felt a need to respond at all. Like, who was that response for? The response was that, um, you know, they had nothing to do with the lighting of the Y, which nobody asked for. Nobody sought that clarification. Like, we didnn't need that. I don't feel well, like I a think lot the of homophobes people... needed it. Okay, the homophobes and that's what I want needed, to get to. Yeah, they needed reassurance that, that BYU was still homophobic. Like, that's like, right. like, like we needed a reminder. Exactly. But I think that Des, there's this entire subculture that has condemned BYU as this liberal bastion. They are so hilarious and sad at the same right. time. They, they like, want to really? save BYU. They want to save BYU for the church. They're like they want to. They're so upset at the direction that BYU has gone on a number of issues. And playing into those fears, there's a lot of people who, uh, what is that called? There, I think it's called Save by U. There's some weird movement that's designed to roll back everything good that's happened at BYU in the last fifty years. Yeah, I don't know about them. I forgot what they're what they're called. It's called Keep by Keep BYU Faithful or Save BYU. I don't even know what it is. They're um, not relevant no more. It's like the it's like the manifesto. Like I don't even remember the name of it anymore. Irrelevant now. Oh, the, the Radical Orthodoxy Manifesto? Yes, irrelevant now. Yeah. I don't know any of the students involved or, or what their demographics are, but it's quite likely that if, it, if we had white students go up the mountain, when they're confronted by police, it's just going to look like, oh, these are some kids. Whereas right. white folks have the ability to do certain things that are illegal that if black folks did them, it, it could end up very dangerous. So Absolutely. that needs to be named as well. So we can't just say, oh, look how yeah. brave these are. I mean, it's not just an act of bravery. It's an act of privilege to be able to yeah. to fly in the face of cops and not get anything done to them. Dude, like legit, during my time at BYU, even if I just traveling in a group of black, of black people made me nervous because I knew just our assembly was a threat. And uh, unless we were at BSU or some gathering where a bunch of black people were actually expected, I knew that our mere presence in groups threatened people on that campus. So you're totally right. Like a lot of what this is, is uh, or at least part of what this is, is a product of privilege. And uh, that's fine that they're using it for good. I just hope that they use that for us as well if the time comes again, when it comes again. Right. And, you know, and this came up last year as well that the black community within the church has stood up for the LGBT community in a way that the white LGBT community has not stood up for the black community. Right. And that right. that needs to be named as mm -hmm. uh, as you already talked about. I want to talk a little bit more about because I have a lot of thoughts. I don't know how much room we have for these thoughts but I'm going to say a few things. <laughs> we can cut them if necessary. So I'm going to backpedal and talk about President Monson, and he said in a conference talk in October of 2008, never let a problem to be solved become more important than a person to be loved. Mm. And many within our church culture have treated LGBT saints as problems to be solved rather than persons to be loved. And I think you can see this in the BYU response of like, nope, we didn't authorize that. There's and it's here's what here's another thing that I thought is every time BYU tweets something like that, 
it's going to lessen the opportunities for BYU graduates. See, I think we're at a cusp of where LGBT rights and dignity are in our culture, where we've been kind of at a turning point for maybe 10 years now. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that turning point. It, it's just does not, it's not a good look. And here's the analogy that I want to make. So let's go back to my um, commandment enumeration project, which partially got deleted because my laptop died. But anyway, <laughs> don't worry, everything's in my head anyway. So there are uh, two interesting biblical commandments in my enumeration project that a lot of people might not know about. And it's quite paradoxical because they're in a little bit of a tension with one another. And this is Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, and then also in verse 19. And they command the children of Israel to, one, never forget what the Amalekites did to them, and two, wipe out all memory of the Amalekites. And this story Whoa, is Whoa, hold up. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hold up. One commandment to remember them. Right. Another commandment to erase them from memory. Right. Mm-hmm. And it says, don't forget to erase them from your memory. It's kind of actually interesting. So my point behind this is that, uh, and this story is found in Exodus 17, and this is right as the children of Israel were leaving Egypt. They finally, they basically clawed their way out of Egypt. They didn't have a lot of resources. They didn't have, I mean, they did plunder some of Egypt, but they were not in a position of strength. They barely got their stuff together. They were climbing through the wilderness, just getting out of uh, 400 years of, of op- oppression in Egypt, and they were very weak and very vulnerable, and the, the Amalekites attacked them in their vulnerability. They attacked them from the rear, where all of the weaker, straggling folks were, the ones that did, were exhausted from their journey, and I think this mm-hmm. is exactly what has happened with the LGBT community, and this happens with, with other communities as well. But I just want to name that of how cruel and sick it is that just as we LGBTs are finally getting some rights and finally getting some dignity, they attack us where we're vulnerable. That, that is just so disgusting that God wants us to remember that forever and to remember that injustice and then wipe out the, the memory of the Amalekites, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a commandment. That's why I'm enumerating these commandments. It is a commandment not to forget the injustices done to a people struggling to claim their place in the world. And too often people of color are told to forgive and forget, to get over it, it was a long time ago, mm-hmm. like we're all fine now. And, and the, the real irony of course is that the, the injustice is still ongoing. You can't forget something when the injustice is still ongoing and the effects are lingering. Yeah. But anyway, this expectation that you're just supposed to ignore the injustice is forestalled by this commandment, the commandment of the Lord, and we can liken this to unto ourselves. And so we're supposed to, um, and here's the other thing is, the danger is that these homophobes, they think that they're, they're, they're afraid of being remembered as wrong, but they re- what they really should be afraid of is not being remembered at all, because the church of 20 or 30 years from now, they're going to throw them all under the bus. All yeah. of the dignity and conscience that they sacrificed to hurt my people in the name of what they thought was their religion, all of that sacrifice will be wasted because they will be thrown under the bus as as engaging in theories or folklore or whatever it is, and they will be completely denied by the church of 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. They will deny, They they will throw them under the bus faster than then um, we throw Brigham under the bus for his Adam God <laughs> doctrine, right? Yeah. And this is a great, um, and this gets back to the thinking. And here's a great counterintuitive observation. Your morality determines your theology. Most people think it's the other way around, that your theological commitments come first and they're more basic and your morality flows from a logical and direct application of your theology. But in practice, it's actually backwards. And we see this with the Apostle Paul. Like he was writing into a concrete mess, a concrete situation that was a mess. And then he developed his theology, he developed the expression of his theology tailored to that mess. And he frequently says different things to different churches. 
but that's exactly how he did his theology. He made it up on the spot. I shouldn't say made it up on the spot, but he articulated it on the spot, speaking as someone who was divinely inspired as an apostle, as a living apostle to, to speak to that. Yeah, and so back to the Amalekites, right? I mm-hmm. want us who are LGBT never to forget this because if we forget what happened, we will um, erase the, the sacrifices of the people who, who made the change happen. We will erase the people who died before they, uh, before they could get to the promised land. You know, we will, it, mm. it's, it's unjust to just pretend like the injustice never happened. I think that's what a lot of us mm-hmm. do with, yeah. with, um, with what they call blacks in the priesthood. I don't, I don't quite like it phrasing it that way. But people jump from like 1852 to 1978 and just kind of forget that that whole thing ever happened. That whole 126 years. Yeah. This is a whole long way of saying, I really think 50 years from now when the history is told and written and the movies are made, people are going to still be talking about that rainbow why. It is Women's History Month. It's the first... Uh, it's our first podcast episode in March, and we have women's history. And I think that the women's history in the church is beginning to be developed much more thoroughly than it has in previous generations. There's mm-hmm. a lot of effort being putting into telling telling the stories. And I like how we have uh, this entire revelation, DNC 25, given to Emma. And we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, yeah. And also, there are so many... Uh, wonderful women that are doing this work of making sure that uh, women are at the very, if they're not being centered in the conversations, they are at the very least acknowledging the contributions that women are making to uh, academia, to the study of women in Mormon academics, as well as in the church, in the scriptures. Like you guys already know, our friends over at the Faithful Feminists are doing this work. Right. Uh you got at last she said it are over there i heard a new podcast called uh i think it actually is just simply called feminist mormon came out about two months ago our friends over at uh at uh holy human you know two great women that we have a lot of great respect for are doing this work uh as they highlight and center the voices of disabled people in mormonism there's also dr julie hanks there is let's talk sis janique and shante uh there's dr lashan there's dr fatima there's uh, our friend jasmine bradshaw who we had on recently Mm -hmm. who hosts the first name basis podcast um point is there is a lot of women out there that are already doing this work and they've been doing it for a long time so uh, we just want to make sure that you guys know that their voices are out there, that they are having these conversations, and we want to take a moment to not just celebrate their voices, but lift them up because they're pretty much, a lot of them are doing this heavy legwork. Beyond the Block would not exist without, without the work of black women. Like, I'm just going to throw mm-hmm. that out there. Like, we wouldn't even be talking to y'all. Y'all wouldn't be hearing us if it weren't for the women who founded the Black LDS Legacy Committee. That is really where the inception of Beyond the Block came from. So, yeah, honestly, women are kind of putting the whole team on their backs right now. The majority of the active members of the church right now are women. And President Nelson, at the women's session of conference uh, just last year, last October, pretty much implied that... Who was it? It was either Elder Iring's talk or Elder Nelson's talk, but they basically just said women are going to be putting the whole team on their backs. And, uh, you know, the very least we could do is acknowledge and celebrate during the month where it's, you know, set apart, where it's ordained, where it set apart the anointed month for women's history. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, we're at least going to name that. And, and there is this weird thing culturally in the church where women are simultaneously pedestalized and praised but then also patronized yeah caged in a sense like oh Mm -hmm. like you know you're working so hard as a mother and i don't know how you do it and all this stuff that you do is great and it's amazing you're doing all these miracles it's that's it's kind of that's kind of just a weird way of saying it if you're not going to allow women full participation and equality and decision making and leadership on the same terms as men. It's that just doesn't right. this doesn't look good. Right. I definitely want to talk a little bit more about that when we get to uh, section 25 because uh 
you know, there's some things in there that kind of allude to that. Before we go ahead and get started on talking about the Come Follow Me, just want to go ahead and remind you guys that we are a proud member of Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in sections... 23 through 26. Right. Now, if I may, Derek, just to kind of set the stage, at least for 23, the first thing I wanted to say was to point out that in this section, most of the men named in the little introductory notes to the section, most of these men named receiving this revelation have received revelations before. We got Oliver Cowdery received a revelation before. Hiram Smith received a revelation before. Joseph Smith Sr. received a revelation before. I can't remember. Did Samuel H. Smith receive a revelation before? He may have, um, but I can't remember. Okay. And Joseph Knight Sr., I think he's the only new one here in terms of uh, receiving a revelation. But the point is that I want to make is that there's no real cap on the revelation that we can receive. The biggest truth that one of the biggest truths that I really enjoy is that we can always ask for more knowledge and more revelation concerning our lives, even when we've already uh, received some. Uh, Many of us members of the church, sometimes we like to talk about how when the Lord has spoken, that's all he will speak or that's all that needs to be said. But tell me how you would feel if like Mm -hmm. this is something I encounter a lot. Um, you know, the more people in the church I talk to about this, but have you ever spoken to people about their patriarchal blessings and they like express disappointment at the length of the patriarchal blessings? Have you encountered this at all, Derek? No, I haven't. Okay. I encountered it a bunch. Um, people would be like all disappointed that their patriarchal blessings are only like a couple paragraphs or they're only one page. And, you know, part of me wants to understand that, but I'm also just like, well, have you asked for more? Like, I'm not talking about going back to the patriarch and asking for more, but I am saying the patriarch source is the same source that you go to every night or every day in your prayers. Like, if you want more information, you can ask for some more information. Like, there's no cap on this. Just because you have a shorter patriarchal blessing doesn't mean the Lord loves you less or that he doesn't have more to communicate to to you. You know, just there isn't a cap. There isn't Mm -hmm. a limit on how much communication that uh, you can have with the Lord. And I feel that's one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest pieces of truths that people on the margins can have, just knowing that, first of all, the Lord hasn't spoken everything that he wants to speak or wants us to know with regard to how we are to conduct our lives and how we are to continue to struggle for our liberation. So we can latch onto that big time, but also just generally speaking, it is just a wonderful thing to know that you can always ask the Lord for more because we have so many of these revelations that are canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants of people asking over and over again for more and more information. Like just because the Lord speaks once doesn't mean he doesn't have more to say to you. He's probably waiting on you to ask more questions if we're being honest. And that's so much of what the Doctrine and Covenants is. The uh, Joseph Smith are asking some questions or him asking some questions on behalf of other people and then those people getting answers and some of them multiple times. So I just wanted to name that as we go into section 23, because most of these men who are named in the introduction have received revelations before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I just had one thing to say about section 23, and it's in verse six, the revel- uh, the encouragement to Joseph Knight. It says yeah. that you must take up your cross. And that just, I I think a lot of us Latter-day Saints culturally have this kind of icky thing about the cross. Like we don't talk about the cross as much as our evangelical friends or as our Catholic friends. I really think that the cross is central to Paul's theology. It's central to Joseph Smith's theology. And um, I think it's only sort of wanting to differentiate us from other Christians, which isn't a good reason to do, you know, to do anything. Uh, that mm-hmm. we've sort of downplayed the cross. But I think the cross is there, and it has such an important thing. And, it, of course, in its context, the Roman cross was the implement of of state violence. It was the yeah. implement of in, intimidating in, entire groups of people. Um, and, and basically, and to me, by saying take up your cross means, look, you are going to have to be resistant to the point where the state wants to kill you. And that was so true in 
the early history of the saints. And um, in the face of that, Jesus modeled nonviolent resistance to authority and um, and took up his cross. And speaking of nonviolent resistance, let's t- I think that when the history finally gets told, the lighting up that Y in rainbow, that's gonna that's going to be told the same way we tell the story of Jesus in the temple when he decided to get rid of the economic, uh, and religious exploitation that was going on in the house of the Lord. Like that was not authorized. Mm-hmm. That was not authorized mm-hmm. by any institution. And it's the same thing with um, the first plague in Egypt, the plague of blood. That wasn't authorized. Moses went up and <laughs> said, I'm going to turn your whole Nile, this gift from the gods of Egypt, I'm turning it to blood. And that wasn't authorized. And I think that type of public stand is exactly what happened with this uh, rainbow Y. And if I may, I, I also want to talk a little bit about this cross too, but uh, before I get to the conversation about the cross, I do want to acknowledge uh, one other thing about Joseph Knight Sr. actually. Joseph Knight Sr. isn't a member of the church at this point, and the Lord is already speaking to him. I'm assuming because of his uh, contributions that he's made to the work of building Zion already. There's, there's something beautiful to me about the Lord bringing an outsider in and also something very on brand about this. Esau Macaulay highlights the inclusion of the Gospel of Luke as being beautiful because, you know, Luke was likely a Gentile. And bringing in Luke is kind of a testimony that God values people of all different ethnic backgrounds or cultural backgrounds and letting them tell the story of Jesus Christ. These revelations, though, very specific and uh, in our church today, the closest of many The closest that many of us will get to receiving a personal bit of prophetic revelation like this is, you know, getting a patriarchal blessing. Yet here is Joseph Knight Mm -hmm. Sr., an outsider, getting that revelation that is now canonized. And Joseph Knight's place in the canon, I can liken to Luke's place in the canon. It's It's a testimony to Christ's value of goodness wherever it is found and whoever may possess it. Sometimes we think how special, you know, we are as members of the Lord's church. You know, we take great pride in being a peculiar people because we have taken upon ourselves the sacred rites of baptism by proper priesthood authority and temple ordinances. And yet here is Christ saying that if you're willing to do my work, I'm willing to talk to you, which brings me to the other thing that stands out to me in these verses, Joseph Knight seniors cross. Um, so I couldn't quite figure out exactly what the cross was just based on how this is written here. And I don't know that it matters much at the point that it matters much for the point that I gained. But first off, the thing that I wanted to acknowledge here is that it seems that Jesus honors people's uh, particular difficulties by calling them crosses. It puts this, it, it, it puts this sort of uh, sacredness on the tasks, on the trials, on the difficulties that people need to bear. To me, it allows me to view my own struggles, my own trials with less shame, and it allows me to view the struggles of other people with less contempt. Now, Joseph Knight Sr.'s particular cross, it seems to be either his inability to pray or his failure to have joined the church. And the evidence indicates that Joseph Knight Sr. might, like, it looks like he was a universalist of sorts, and it makes sense that he had a healthy respect right. and knowledge of the goodness of Joseph, Joseph Smith's work, but he didn't feel the need to join the church. He didn't feel the need to join because why would he need to if God was looking out for everybody according to the universalist school of thought and he was going to save any, everybody anyway? The point is that we might look at folks who don't pray or people who know the church is true but won't join. We might look at them with a bit of judgment or even contempt. Really? You can't pray? That's such an easy thing to do, and you can't do it? Or you're just a dry Mormon, you know the church is true, you can't, you can't join, what's wrong with you? You know, we do stuff like that. But the Lord, in acknowledging Joseph Knight Sr., he called whatever struggle he had his cross. Like the Lord honors people's difficulties even though they can never compare to his actual cross, and I think that's wow, just so yeah, beautiful that is. That, and in such a compassionate way to view other people, which brought me to an interesting con- consideration. And I, and I think I know where you would go with this, Derek, but I do want to ask you about it anyway, because I, I 
honestly don't feel like I'm in a position to speak to it. Contempt might be my single biggest obstacle in talking to people about LGBTQ folks or people of color or any marginalized group. Like as soon as somebody outs themselves as a bigot, I tend to view them with contempt and my willingness to be diplomatic Mm -hmm. or respectful to them goes way down. I also feel like I have a pretty good handle on who's actually trying to take up their cross and who isn't. I feel like I can honor people who are at least making an effort, but is there perhaps a way to honor and respect people who don't view me as fully human and aren't trying to? I I feel like Christ did that. Like I think of the example of, you know, Christ trying to, or sorry, Peter trying to defend Christ and he chops off that guy's ear who has come to kill him. And then Christ heals that man. Like he puts his Mm -hmm. ear back on. And I'm just like, Christ, you better than me. You really wow. are better than me. If somebody has tried to kill me, I don't know that I'm going to put their ear back on. Like real talk. Mm. Just that's who I am as a person. But I feel like Christ did that. And I feel like a lot of Martin Luther King's philosophy was that. Like it was about engaging in nonviolent direct action and showing forth love whenever possible to display a moral superiority to what people might otherwise expect of him. But I also don't want to draw inappropriate parallels between honoring the crosses of other people and what we may be tempted to view as validating the bigotry of others. Does that make sense, Derek? It does. And I think part of the there, – there's sort of like two, for me, two facets or, or results of nonviolence. One is the strategic because sometimes being nonviolent can actually – be a strategic path to to getting the thing that you're you're looking at um, by uh-huh. not uh, by arousing sympathy for your cause or by not causing a certain kind of pushback or by not whatever it or sort of outlasting. There's just ways that nonviolence can be very strategic. But then there's also an inner purpose to nonviolence because if the goal of the other party is to dehumanize you. The one thing that you do have control over is your approach. Mm-hmm. And by for me, responding in violence, whether it's violence of the heart or violence of the tongue or violence of the fist or weapon, that would reduce my humanity or my sense of humanity. It would um, deteriorate and decompose my soul. And so by not mm-hmm. letting that reaction come out of me, there's, I'm actually reclaiming my humanity and winning. Even if I lose the whatever it is that they're mm-hmm. doing to me, like even if they kill me, for example, if I don't take the bait and if I don't play their same game, there's a sense in which I win because I still have my yeah. full soul. And mm-hmm. a little piece of your soul dies when you cooperate and and become, um, I know you don't like Michelle's <laughs> Michelle Obama saying, when they go low, we not. go high. <laughs> I do not. I don't like it. <laughs> but perhaps that is my cross to bear. But, um, well, so uh, so that's kind of where I'm thinking of it. And that's, that's, that's sort of an answer of like what you do to not, or what do I do to not maintain contempt for the people who would deny my full humanity and my full dignity is if I do that, um, I think I'm the... I'm the one that's going to basically their position denies their own humanity. They become inhumane. They deny my humanity. My position is one that affirms their humanity and my humanity and sees them as a reclaimable child of God and someone who's redeemable. And here's the other thing is a little bit of empathy comes in when you realize that just for a few variables, they're basically in the same, same boat. We are, you know, we make Mm -hmm. mistakes, like no one is 100% woke on every issue. Like I, it's very easy for me to judge people for making the same mistake that I learned not to make last week, right? Um, that happens often in the in the progressive world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, there's there's a sense in which uh, you can look at the other person and say, you know what? If it weren't for just a few details, I could be in their position. So. Yeah. So that's kind of my approach to your question about what to do with this temptation to contempt. Thank you for taking the time to uh, talk a little bit more about it. Like this is a conversation Derek and I have had a couple of times and uh, I'm really doing my best to try to see things this way because I think I could be more effective as a minister of this work 
if I could learn to simply not have such ill feelings about people that are on this journey and regardless of whether or not they're trying or not. So uh, well, I it, think- do- it does me some good to hear this every so often because it just reminds me that there is a way to do it. Well, I think I almost have the reverse problem. I have much of a, it's more challenging to me when allies mess up than when the homophobes do. Because when the homophobes, I can actually be friends with homophobes because I know where they are and what they're doing and what they stand for. And <laughs> like I have very low expectations of them, but it's the allies who I thought I could trust that they do something that is a reverts to their own straight privilege and their own straight supremacy that they haven't fully interrogated. I get more, I have a more problem with that. Understood. That is also very valid. Well, anyway, let's move on to section 24 because we've got still got a lot of stuff to go through. I only have a, um, a couple of things to say about 24. Uh, in verse okay. 5, we have this gift of the comforter, the Holy Ghost, and the gift of expounding all scriptures unto the church. And I just want to name that there's a great power and strength in expounding scripture. I think a lot of Certainly. Mormons culturally think of it as just some like like magic thing, like like a vending machine. Oh, if you just read a certain few f- verses a day, God will di- bless you in a way that's disconnected from those verses. And then in verse 16, it says, this talks about violence. It says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall lay their hands upon you by violence, ye shall command to be smitten in my name. And behold, I, I will smite them according to your words in mine own due time. And this is this is uh, something that's very interesting that uh, the Lord often says, "Vengeance is mine," and so we yeah. saints must be nonviolent and then leave it in the hands of the Lord. Do you, you have know any, just for the yeah? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, do you have any thoughts on on any of this section twenty four? In section twenty four, yes. On what you just said, I mean, we've we've talked about this a little bit already. You 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 still know where I stand when it comes to uh, nonviolence, but you know, I do want to say I do hear what's being said in these verses. And interestingly enough, I did highlight them on my uh, most recent pass through of this verse because for two reasons: one, because I knew you were going to say something about these verses, and the other reason, just so I could remind myself that I don't always have to be the one to try to quote unquote execute justice. In fact that's not actually my responsibility and that in several ways takes kind of the pressure off uh, when it comes to this work because I don't want to worry about retribution but uh, for 24 I'll just briefly highlight something that stood out to me first of all in the context of these verses like a lot of a lot of persecution is going on at this point we're about four months into the organization of the church and um, the saints are dealing with a lot of uh, persecutions and what this like the last bit of introduction to this section really stood out to me. The purpose was to strengthen, encourage, and instruct them. And then as I read these verses, I noticed a lot of familiar themes. The one that I want to, I guess I'll, the only one I'll speak on is in verse seven, because I got, I get this question a lot from time to time where people ask me where I get the strength to do this work that I'm doing. And I'm sure you get it too, Derek. But, um, after this, uh, after last Saturday's event or two Saturdays ago event where we went over the Black LDS Legacy Conference, um, somebody straight up asked me this question, like how you're able to stay in this church, how you're able to do this. And I answered this partially in our Why We Believe episode, but uh, something that I wanted to, well, let me just read this verse first. It says, for thou shalt devote all thy service in Zion, and in this thou shalt have strength. Now, it's difficult to explain where I get the energy for this work that I'm engaged in, but I feel like this is a pretty good distillation of where I get a lot of my strength from. This is heavy work. It's lonely, it's like, and it's on occasions boring and depressing at times, but it just otherwise, it, it takes a lot of energy is what I'm trying to say. And life seems more difficult engaging in this work than it might be if I wasn't engaging it. But I know that part of why I'm able to persist is because that I know that the work is divine. And because the work is divine, I am sustained in it. Mm -hmm. I really like what James Cone once said, where he said that the more we struggle against white supremacy, the more we find in it, or the more we find in the cross, the spiritual power to resist the violence we so often suffer. Mm -hmm. We we come to know, as uh, Lauren Bennett once wrote, 
that at the deepest level, we, we come to know at the deepest level what it is like to be crucified and more, that we are the same, that we were some, some things in this world that are worth being crucified for. And in our collective outpourings of song and prayer, the emotions of others make us feel strength in ourselves. I really like what uh, Bennett said there because it really is in this struggle that we are able to come to a deeper knowledge and more face-to-face with what Christ experienced. I feel like that's why there's so much resilience in the uh, black community in particular. He identifies with us and we identify with him. And it's in that identification that we are able to become more like Christ and receive more of his divinity in us. I really also like what James Cone said about how it is really difficult to understand Christ from a white perspective. It's like Mm -hmm. trying to understand Jesus from a Roman perspective. So there is strength in these margins because it is in these margins that is where Christ that, that Christ is found. He identified so strongly and so powerfully with the margins that Matthew twenty five forty was written, where exactly. he says, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it into me. That is why it is so important to understand Christ from the perspectives of people on the margins, from the perspective of the LGBTQ community, from the black community, from the disabled community, from the perspective of women, It is because in those margins is where Christ is going to be found because that is where he identifies. So I just really liked that this was highlighted and distilled in such a concise verse that in this fight, in this struggle, in this service, we find strength. That is why I do this or one of the reasons that I'm able to do this. And I I think that's something that people don't realize is that when a when a minoritized group is expecting justice, it's not like they're asking us to do them a favor, as if it were just a unilateral thing that we've got we've got everything and we just bless them with what we've got. Because the reality is, the white community is impoverished and missing something by not having the communion of black saints incorporated into one whole it's not like oh the white people have to do this favor for black people and it's just a benefit one way and a loss the other it's a gain all the way around and i think it's the same thing with um yes lgbt folks it's not like we're asking for something for us we're asking for something for the whole community we're asking some for something that will bless every person in the church yes yes and everybody eats yeah and White, I hate to say white supremacy hurts white people too because it's not at all analogous. It's not at all proportional. But there is a sense in which it's bad for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, patriarchy can be very bad for men. It limits what men can do. Uh, mm-hmm. Straight supremacy limits what straight men can do. There's just so many ways that these evils deny the humanity in all of us. And that's why that's why Satan is called the great deceiver. He's fooled people into thinking they benefit from something that actually is awful f- for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Say that, brother. Well, then let's go on to section 25. Yeah, let's touch 25. I'll, I'll just go straight to 25.6 if I could, Derek. Okay. Now, we, we talk about 25 a lot because this is revelation given to Emma Smith specifically. It's one of the, I mean, are there any other times where women receive revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants? Um, I think there's like a, like a one-line thing to a couple of other women somewhere. I'm not All sure right. right now. Um, yeah, neither am I. But uh, point being is a whole section for Emma. And um, I wanted to just highlight what, what is happening here in verse 26. Let me read this verse. And thou shalt go with him at the time of his going and be unto him for a scribe, while there is no one to be a scribe for him, that I might send my servant Oliver Cowdery, whithersoever I will. Now, this harkens back to something I noticed in section 20, where we see that priesthood offices have certain duties but there's not necessarily anything to be said of other people performing those same duties. These are priesthood responsibilities, but like most of these responsibilities are not, don't require priesthood authority. 
the scriptures seem to indicate in uh, back in section 20 that the responsibility of ensuring the duties get done fall on those priesthood offices if no one else does them. And in this case, we see Emma stepping into Oliver's role because there's no one else to do it. And we know that Emma served as a scribe for a time. So what is to be said, like the question that came to my mind is what is to be said of branches across the world who don't have enough men to fill priesthood responsibilities? Is it not appropriate then to allow women to fill those voids when needed? Like I just looked at this word and the Lord said that Emma's going to be unto him for a scribe because there is no one to be a scribe for him. Right. Like, I, I just like that the Lord doesn't tie this to anything other than simply a job that needs to get done. This isn't a question of priesthood responsibility. This isn't a question of apostolic responsibility or second elder responsibility. Mm -hmm. This is just a task that needs doing. And Emma, you are present, you are able, so you can do it. Like, that is what I want to see more of in the church, because like one of the things that really got under my skin during the course of my mission was serving in a branch where they clearly needed more priesthood holders to do jobs. And men were holding multiple priesthood callings. And I was like, this would be a really good time to ordain some women, because like real talk, mm -hmm. there are so many capable individuals here and we are unnecessarily burdening these men with these responsibilities simply because of what's between their legs. It's ridiculous. But like conversation mm -hmm. for another day. All I wanted to highlight here was that someone was able and willing to fill a responsibility that a man had, not just any man, the second elder of the church and right. Emma was called to fill that responsibility. I want to see more of this where the Lord is tying someone's ability to fulfill a responsibility solely to their ability, to their presence and their ability and willingness and worthiness mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. So I just really like that and wanted to. And look, verse seven, he says, "Thou shalt be ordained to do things, expound yep. scriptures, exhort the church." Like I, I love that word "ordained," especially where a woman is concerned. Yeah, and um, it, there's just so many interconnected things here about. Um, there's a lot, man. About, for example. The role of women, the role of men, like, should there be even a priority? Like, should women be seen as, you know, a backup plan, like plan B if there's no man? Like, um, and should we value people in the church based on their ability? I mean, that's something that we can learn from the disability community is that everyone has inherent worth and dignity and um, apart from whether they, they're productive or not. And that's, a, that's another flaw with capitalism is that people's value is... You get paid based on how easy you are to replace, not how hard you work mm -hmm. or how hard whatever, or or even your talent. There's a sense in which every child of God is irreplaceable, and so we have yeah. to look at that. I want to back up and talk to a little bit about this uh, this term "elect lady" in verse three. Yes, sir. And this is first used in it's well, it's used in the King James version of Second John one verse one, where John is writing to a quote, an elect lady. And most interpreters take this as a figurative expression for the congregation that that was receiving this letter. And there's a sense in which, uh, there's, there's a possibility it could have been to, written to a specific woman, but Second John looks like it was written to an entire congregation based on, you know, the plural pronouns involved and uh, the content. And what I'm saying is, there's a sense in which we can look over Emma's shoulder and read some of what was sent to her as given to the whole church. I don't want to take yes. anything away that's special about Emma, but all of these texts were given and published and had into, like this wouldn't have been published in the Doctrine and Covenants, the 1835 DNC, unless it had enduring value for the ministry of the church. Like all of these sections here are given to provide strength and encouragement to people during a time of persecution. And um, and that kind of ties in with, with what verse five is, and it says, and the office of thy calling shall be for a comfort unto my servant Joseph Smith Jr., thy husband. And there's a way of taking it where like, oh, men, are, women, are their role is to serve men. And that's not where I wanna go. But it is about what we should all be doing to comfort one another and comforting the afflicted is, is something that we definitely see here in this verse because Joseph Smith Jr. did have a lot of afflictions. He even uses the word afflictions. Mm -hmm. And this gets into this other principle that's sort of an imbalance where 
all members of the church, all children are taught to like, oh, you need to be like Nephi, or oh, you need to be like King Benjamin, or you need to be like Alma, right? Like boys and girls are all told to look up to Nephi as an example of strength and faith and uh, obedience, right? Where where do we get situations where boys are told to look up to women in the scripture and say, oh, be like Esther or be like Emma or be like Sarah? Literally never. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And I think there's this assumption that women somehow just magically are supposed to be able to see themselves in, in the male heroes. But why not have that same assumption that all men, without taking away something from women, should be able to see themselves, at least in some ways, in the women heroes of the scriptures. Yeah. And so I, my point is that there's something in this section for all of us, including men, to learn from. And and, and some of that gets into verse eight, where she said, where it says, um, where it says, uh, "He shall lay his hands upon thee, and thou shalt receive the Holy Ghost." and thy time shall be given to writing and to learning much. I love that we have the authorization and the blessing of women to, it even sounds weird to say this, but to learn and to write and to be productive and to be independent instruments of the Holy Ghost's work on this earth, right? I think that's that's a bold. Now, I really, my sense among feminists in the church is there's sort of two approaches to section 25. One is to try to see it in, in, in as positive light as possible to say, look, this is empowering to women. This is, you know, a blessing that we even have a revelation given to a woman. And then there's going to be other feminists that say, look, this is putting her in a really narrow space. There's not enough given to women. There's not enough, you know, and both of those need to be, um, we need to hear both of those, I think. But but my point is that there are some some interesting details in here where she is ordained to teach, she's ordained to um, write and learn. And one of the most, I think, overlooked, and I don't think anyone has ever pointed this out uh, that I know of, about the power of her ability to select the hymns. We see this in verse 11, and it shall be given thee also to make a selection of sacred hymns as it shall be given thee which is pleasing unto me to be had in my church. And there's power in organizing a hymnal. And and we shouldn't underestimate the compilation of hymns as an influential and authorita- authoritative uh, act. Oh, absolutely. So much of our theological formation as children and as adults comes from hymns and songs. You won't believe how many people in this world believe that the baby Jesus never cried. And you know why they believe <laughs> that? It's because of one line in one song in A Way in a Manger, it says, no crying he makes. Mm -hmm. That one line impacts. Also the doctrine, also the doctrine of Heavenly Mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that definitely is. uh, Well, there are more sources than one line, but I think the way most people engage with it and the most people hear about and the most people learn of it is through, through one line written by, of course, Eliza Snow. Yeah, and and there's a, this principle called lex orandi lex credendi, which means the law of praying is the law of believing, and it's essentially saying that the the liturgy, the worship life of the community, actually ends up informing people's faith. And the elder who baptized me, I asked him like, "What do you think is like the best theological work in the church? What do you think is a, a good source of theology?" And he said, "The primary songbook." He said that the primary songbook is the best repository of our doctrine. And I thought, wow, that is so interesting. And I went back and looked, because uh, I didn't grow up in the church, and so I didn't know all these primary <laughs> songs. And I read them, I'm like, yeah, this actually is an absolute replacement for a systematic theology. Instead of having an official systematic theology, we have this children's songbook, and we have our um, adult hymn book as well. And mm-hmm. if you look, almost everything we need is in that primary book, uh, songbook. Dude, we've so got much. the articles of faith. We've got all the, the basics. We've got so, it, it covers just so many topics very thoroughly. Now I'm not saying everything in there is perfect, but we've got some really brilliant things in there. Like um, every star is different, and so is every child. 
We've got, Mm -hmm. if you don't walk as most people do, some people will walk away from you, but I won't. Like, there's some beautiful Mm -hmm. theology there that's worth 20 of of a leading apostles conference talks, right? Yes, sir. And so I just want, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay what Emma was given here. She was given something that has enduring value. And she, in many ways, is a co-creator of the restoration along with Joseph and everyone else. Speaking of hymns, I, um, I, I decided to come up with something radical. I have all these radical ideas that I never follow up on, like that video that I promised everyone that I didn't do. <laughs> But on what really, really um, was disturbing was how people exploited the family proclamation on on the what was it Thursday? It's like, oh, we're gonna we hear about all these people who are just gonna show up wearing rainbows to to share love. We're gonna come with these umbrellas, with these menacing things, with, armed with uh, the uh, the proclamation as a weapon. And uh, seeing the proclamation as an umbrella that will protect us from the storm of these rainbow mafia whatevers. Now, now I have to say, if there really were a gay mafia, I'd be in a lot better financial shape than I am right now. So <laughs> there's there's no gay mafia. But I came up with an idea, and right. my idea was to take that one line from the proclamation that says other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation yes sir and this is in the context of family roles and how every family is ordained of god but there's going to be exceptions in case of death or disability or other circumstances now i'm a i know a big old other circumstance right here right (laughs) so my brilliant idea was i'm going to take that one line other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation and turn it into a song make a hymn out of it I was going to make a four-part fugue. I can't really write a four-part fugue. A fugue? fugue. Yeah. Of course you were, Derek. Of course you were going to write a fugue. But my point is, taking the content of this proclamation, putting it in the form of a devotional hymn, actually is empowering. It's reclaiming the dignity that they're trying to steal from us by using the proclamation against us, the very proclamation that I'm going to stand on and sing proudly because there's a place for me in this one line of the proclamation, and they will never forget hearing this choir sing, other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation. So that's all I had for section 25. So that's all I got for section 25 as well, and I don't know if I'm going to want to say anything about section 26 today. I feel like I've talked about the law of common consent before, yeah, I mean, just to remind people, in case you haven't heard our previous episodes, um, one thing I just wanted to say is that common consent is really important in the governance of the church, and it ends up being our final authority. And culturally, we do have a tendency to outsource our authority to the leaders and not to the individual conscience, the witness of the Spirit, or the collective impression of the saints. And that is really important for the functioning of the church. It wouldn't be here and it wouldn't be in these other sections if it weren't essential to the functioning of the church, especially a church that's developing and trying to understand itself and trying to make its way in a world that doesn't like it, right? This is where we were at the beginning of the, right here in the beginning of the Restoration in 1830. So that's kind of just Mm. where I'm going to end it. And of course, there's a command at the beginning, let your time be devoted to the studying of the scriptures and to preaching, uh, and to confirming the church. Yes, sir. So with that, before we go ahead and wrap up and do a couple of housekeeping items, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, interviews about LDS current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Instagram and Twitter at btblds, and then also on Facebook. 
So with that, we'll just uh, go ahead and also send a special thanks to our friends Tamara Kemsley, who hot, who handles our audio editing, as well as uh, Brother David Doyle, who handles our transcription service. We want to thank you guys, as well as all of our collaborators who have been feeding us some great ideas for episodes mm-hmm. and uh, input on the show. We really do appreciate your guys' uh, contributions. If you guys are interested in becoming part of our collaborator community, uh, we did set up a Glow page uh, several months back where if you want to if you're willing you're able you can contribute you can throw some coins at us and uh, contribute to this work that we're doing we're looking to do some more projects we're looking to continue to have some more bonus episodes Um, we're looking to create some more fresh content for you guys so if you want to contribute to that and just to the overall Mm -hmm. spreading of the message of the podcast you can go to glow.fm slash beyond the block to make a contribution that's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. And also a quick thank you to all the other collaborators, uh, the new ones this week. A lot of y'all have these email addresses that don't let me discern y'all names. So uh, if y'all would be so kind, join the Facebook group as soon as you can so I can get your names and, you know, actually mention y'all on the show. Thank you guys properly. That would be wonderful. Uh, I think that's all I got, Derek. So uh, yeah, if there's nothing that's all else. I have too. Awesome. Well, thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Okay, bye everyone. Hey Carol, it is James here and... It's me, Derek. Hi Carol. Happy birthday. Yes, we heard you got a birthday this week. Lee Hale, who's a uh, friend of mine, was, reached out said you're a big fan of the podcast. So uh, we're honored that you love the podcast, that you enjoy listening to us every week. And uh, of course, we were going to wish you a happy birthday because that means a lot to us. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. And thanks for being a listener. <laughs>